Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Robots Radio presents... You're listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast, the best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons & Dragons. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. I am your lore master, Sergio, and thanks for joining me this week. So a few episodes ago, we discussed the Undying King Vecna, the lore surrounding his origins, his adventures or misadventures as they were uh, due in part to, well, he's one of the most iconic characters in Dungeons and Dragons, one of the biggest and uh, baddest and we had yet to cover him in depth on the show but also a smaller part of that was due to the release of season four of stranger things now each season the dungeons and dragons playing kiddos assign one of the game's iconic monsters to whatever evil threat they are facing and this season it happens to be vecna in seasons two and three mike will lucas and dustin they dubbed the force that they battled a mind flayer. And Tom and Stuart covered the Illithids way back in episode 33. So check that out for more information on mind flayers. But what about that season one creature? The creature whose miniature comes with the D&D Stranger Things box set adventure. The creature who served as the killer in the Dead by Daylight Stranger Things DLC. What about the Demogorgon? So much how the Stranger Things version of the Mind Flayer and their version of Vecna only have a passing resemblance to their D&D counterparts, the Demogorgon from the Monster Manual is actually not the Demogorgon at all. It's, he's a singular individual creature who looks differently, behaves differently, and whose origins stem not from the upside down, but from none other than the birthplace of demons, the abyss. Like I said, it's actually the demon's name, so it's more apt to just simply say Demogorgon rather than the Demogorgon. Now, now, now we have that settled. Let's let us mine for some lore, shall we, dear listener? So the let's see, there I go again. I'm so used to saying the. So Demogorgon makes its D, makes his D and D debut in the same original Dungeons and Dragons supplement which saw the first appearance of the hand and eye of Vecna, that being Supplement 3, Eldritch Wizardry. It is under the heading of Demon, and he's alongside Orcus, and he is in fact labeled a Prince of Demons. From the description, it is contended by some that this Demon Prince is supreme, 
And in any event, he is awesome in his power. This gigantic demon is 18 feet tall and reptilian. Demogorgon has two heads, which bear the visages of evil baboons, or perhaps mandrels with the hideous coloration of the latter named beast. His blue-green skin is plated with snake-like scales. His body and legs are those of a giant lizard. His twin necks resemble snakes, and his thick tail is forked. Rather than having arms, he has great tentacles. So immediately off-rip, off-muscle, this differs from the Stranger Things depiction. There definitely wasn't an 18-foot giant snake lizard thing with two baboon heads running around Hawkins. And so for an artist depiction of what the D&D Demogorgon looks like, I would say the two most recognizable images of him are either uh, from the cover of the Out of the Abyss 5th edition adventure or the 4th edition Monster Manual 2. But did Demogorgon always have two heads? Well, legend goes that originally Demogorgon had one head and one mind. A mighty blow from the deity Ameth split him nearly in two before Demogorgon killed Ameth. After he healed, Demogorgon's head remained split. But now that we have these two baboon heads, what can they do? Okay, so if the demon's able to gaze upon an enemy with both heads, a hypnotize effect takes place on a failed save. If it's just the left head, who actually has a name and his name is a mule, is able to sneak a peek at the enemy, Demogorgon achieves the same effect as essentially a charm spell. And a gaze from the right head, who also has a name, uh, Hetheridea, causes an insanity effect. So beyond the magical effects Demogorgon has due to its heads, it can also use its tentacles, what, you know, what it has in place of its arms, as well as its tail to engage in just some good old-fashioned melee combat. Now, these two heads are really interesting and something I want to dive deeper into. As previously mentioned, each of the heads has a name. The left head is named Amul, the right head is named Heatherdea. And it's not only that they have different names, but they also have different personalities altogether. Now, this comes from the third edition Book of Vile Darkness source book. It says, inside the Prince of Demons, rages a secret war for control of himself. Demogorgon has two heads and therefore two minds, and each one seeks domination of the other. Even those creatures familiar with the demon prince are unaware of Demogorgon's eternal internal conflict. A mule, one of Demogorgon's personas, seeks to part with his sibling persona named Hetherdea. A mule and Hetherdea are able are each unable to control the other because each is in truth an aspect of the other. Nor could one slay the other without also perishing. Still, a mule seeks a way to be free of and eventually usurp his other half. For selfishness, for selfishness and jealousy in a demon knows no bounds. Hetherdea is too concerned with the effect such a separation would have on all his dread accomplishments to seriously consider the notion of living alone. Now, so while it may seem obvious uh, that the two heads um, have different personalities and uh, ideological perspectives, 
uh, like it says, no one truly realizes the extent to which his two heads actually detest one another. And it is in this animosity, it is, is, it is this dissension which keeps Demogorgon from fully achieving his goals and what could possibly lead to his defeat. In Dungeon Magazine issue 148, um, it contains the, well of, the Wells of Darkness installment of the Savage Tide Adventure Path. Uh, really quickly, for those who don't know, uh, they used to essentially serialize campaigns. You would get um, like one chapter, you know, every other month or so. And sometimes they would even combine them all in, um, in a, an actual like, you know, hardcover book. Um, like Shackled City is a, is a very famous one, as is Age of Worms. So anyways, this is the Savage Tide Adventure. Uh, and in it, it is possible for the party to interrogate the succubus Shami Amaray about her former lover. That's right. Shami Amaray has a thing with, for demons with two heads, I guess. Who knows? It says, uh, or rather she would tell you, Demogorgon is his own worst enemy. He is, in many ways, two creatures that share the same body. A mule, his left head, is the more charismatic and calculating while Hethrodea, his right head, is more impulsive and feral. Each views the other incapable of outfoxing itself. And then when discussing how to engage Demogorgon in combat um, and have any chance to defeat the demon prince, the succubus has this to say. If you want to even have a chance at stopping him, you need to distract him. That is Demogorgon's weakness. Each situation he faces brings two reactions, not one. And when faced with multiple dangers across multiple fronts, these reactions can paralyze him. So that may seem to be the key in defeating Demogorgon, using his internal struggle against him. Each head is convinced it knows best and as a result will likely put the body at odds with itself. So spell casting attacks coupled with melee and or ranged attacks would likely cause enough division between a mule and Hetherdia to allow the heroes to gain an advantage that it might not otherwise that might not otherwise present itself as powerful as the demon prince is. Moreover, the demon prince is constantly at war with others of his kind. Orcus and Grazit have been locked in eternal battle with Demogorgon, and he has never fully defeated either of them. For when he moves against one, the other's forces are always there to strike at his flanks. So any heroes looking to confront Demogorgon would be wise to utilize this strategy and take it to heart. And of course, we will have more information on the animosity between Demogorgon and Grazit and Orcus when we return from the middle of the show. But before we break, I want to quickly discuss the Demogorgon from Stranger Things. Now, this creature is presented in the Stranger Things Hunt for the, Hunt for the Thessal Hydra adventure. It describes him as a predator of the upside down. The Demogorgon hunts the dimension looking for unfortunate creatures that find their way there. The size and shape of an adult humanoid, the Demogorgon's mouth encompasses its face and unfolds like a blooming flower. And as far as the stat blocks go, it's got a 
AC of 15 due to natural armor with roughly 60 hit points. It's 8d8 plus 24 and a 30 foot walking speed. It has a multi-attack consisting of a bite and two claw attacks, all of which are a plus five to hit. The bite does 1d8 plus three piercing damage, while each claw attack does 2d8 plus three damage. All pretty standard, right? It's it's special traits, it's uh, racial or special traits, which are really fun though, at least from a DM's perspective, at least. If you're a player, you probably don't like these at all. Um, besides Keen Spell, the Demogorgon takes advantage on melee attacks against enemies who do not have all of their hit points. This is known as Blood Frenzy. And unless the creature took fire or acid damage in the previous round, it regenerates 10 hit points at the start of its turn. So like I said, it's not really the, the attacks or, um, any, or the armor that really make it stand out. It's, it's blood frenzy and it's regeneration abilities. So that being said, let us head into the middle of the show. Welcome, dear listener, to the middle of the show. It is during the middle of the show where we thank our patrons. It is also when we discuss upcoming miniatures or recent D&D news, if there are any of either. And it's also when we highlight some fun homebrew content available on DMs Guild. First up, the patrons. This week, a special shout out to our apprentice level patrons, Daniel P. and Peter M., as apprentice, apprentice patrons, they enjoy early ad-free episodes, as well as a D&D Lorecast sticker pack, in addition to other perks. We recently tweaked some of the tiers on our Patreon, so check it out if you're interested. In addition to the aforementioned apprentice tier at $5, we have the $10 scholar tier, which gets access to the Patron Plus bonus content for each episode, plus other perks. The 25 wizard tier gets you a D&D Lorecast t-shirt upon, immediately upon signing up and even more swag every six months, as well as an invitation to our world famous monthly patron roundtable. And our redesigned deity tier at $75 gets you all of that stuff, all that great stuff that I just covered, plus being able to have myself or crit guest spot during a session of your campaign or even have the D&D Lorecast crew run a one-shot for you and your friends. When we were putting together the Patreon, we built it with perks and benefits we felt would be worth the cost. And if you are able, please consider joining the fine folks who pay hard-earned copper, silver, and gold to help financially support the show. This, in turn, allows us to make the show bigger and better. It helps fund cool projects like the Magic Item of the Week PDF we are commissioning art for and will submit to the DMs Guild. And it helps us put together really cool contests like the one that we are running right now. Through the end of the month, June 30th, 2022 at 11.59 p.m., we are raffling off eight Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition rulebooks. Included are the uh, core rulebook gift set, which comes with the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual, along with the DM screen, all inside a really cool slipcase. Also included 
are Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Volo's Guide to Monsters, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Mordekainen's Tome of Foes, and Fizbin's Treasury of Dragons. One ticket will cost you $4 US, three tickets will cost you $10 US, and a winner will be announced on our July 7th show. And 100% of the proceeds, every single penny from ticket sales will go to the Critical Role Foundation, which is an awesome charity started up by Matt Mercer and his group of nerdy voice actors. So much like the Patreon, if you are able to, please consider participating as it, all, as it does go to a very noble cause. And finally, what does the DMs Guild hold for us this week? Well, we've talked a little bit this week about what the Demogorgon is capable of. Uh, good to know if your party ever comes across the Demon Prince of the Gaping Maw. But what if instead of having to deal with the Demogorgon's traits and abilities, you could use them yourself? So I found this really interesting content from a homebrewer known only as Golem, named the Shaitan. It says, play as a Shaitan, a quote-unquote race born into another race, when a demon lord curses a child's parent, the child then takes on traits of that lord and often their quote-unquote gifts are as much a boon as they are a danger. Included in the PDF are eight sub-races with distinctly different play styles modeled off of demon lords as well as 11 unique and powerful racial feats plus a new background known as reformed cultists. So if you ever wanted to play a character with the infernal power of the abyss behind them, you can now. For $7.95 on the DMs Guild, a link, of course, is included in the show notes. Definitely check it out and let us know how you liked it. Let us know how you, can, how you incorporated it into your campaign. All that being said, let's head to the end of the show, shall we? Welcome to the end of the show, and we're going to use this portion now that we've discussed how Demogorgon acts and operates, let's dive into where exactly this demon prince comes from. We know he rules over a layer of the abyss, uh, the 88th layer, in fact, known as the Gaping Maw. But where do the origins of this demon prince lie? The Demonomicon from 4th edition offers a mythical and dare I say poetic view of the creation of not only Demogorgon but other demon princes as well. It says, drawn by whispers promising power and dominion over the unfolding realm of creation, the first primordials entered the abyss. The shattered realm they observed within the vortex was thoroughly corrupted but these creatures were unconcerned with morality as they pressed on, beckoned by the whispering of the abyss's evil heart. As they explored farther into the desolation, they came upon a great blood-red ocean, and they knew they had reached that heart at last. Floating there in the shallows of the nascent blood sea, the shard of evil called out for one strong enough to step forward and claim it. The first to set forth 
was a petulant primordial of unbridled fury named Demogorgon. As Demogorgon waded into the turbulent surf, however, another one rose up from the darkened depths beneath the sea. The interloper, Dagon, challenged Demogorgon for the right to claim the shard, the mighty primordials clashing in a battle that turned the sea to a bloody storm. But as they fought, a third being crawled up from a hitherto unseen pit to claim the shard as his own. Oboxub, a loathsome oberith of putrescence and filth, had become the first prince of demons. So this shard of evil, sometimes known as the shard of pure evil, was a tool created out of pure hatred and pure malice by the oberith so they could travel to different universes after they had essentially drained their own of all its resources, essentially um, just sucked it dry. So in this myth so far, two primordial demons, also known as Tanari, begin fighting over the shard, Demogorgon and Dagon, only to have it taken from them, from both of them, by the Oberith Oboxum. The will of the shard, which was to conquer, to, um, to rule, compelled Oboxum to place it in the astral sea where it could conceivably from there, go on to conquer the known universe. So what happens next? It says, not all demons wanted to see the shard lay waste to the astral realms. Their primordials, Demogorgon, Orcus, and Baphomet, already in the throes of demonic transformation, feared rightly that Obaxub's actions would grant him control over all the cosmos. They attacked the Prince of Demons before he could reach the Astral Sea, flinging a box up and the shard down again into the vortex beneath which the abyss had formed. Where a box up struck, the abyss was sundered, forming a deep fissure into which the sea drained away into a boiling storm. But where did these primordials come from? Was it just random chance? Or was there something more sinister at play? An article from Dragon Magazine issue 357 offers one take on the origin story of Demogorgon and his Tanari brethren. A renegade Oberith, whose true name of, uh, the true name of which has been stricken from time, decided to wage war on the rulers of the abyss and drew first blood by killing a boxer. This previously thought to be impossible act caused the other demons to quickly fall in line and the renegade Oberith, the queen of chaos, began experimenting on the souls of mortals, twisting them into something evil. The first such result was in fact Demogorgon. It says a twisted, deformed abortion of evil with boneless arms, twin simian heads, reptilian legs, and a twisted tail, a snapping, howling, and ultimately uncontrollable monster formed from the primal fears of mortal souls. The queen of chaos tossed this creature aside, and those that came after were less broken. 
that goes on to describe the inevitable power struggle between these new Tanari and the Oberith, which the newer breed of demon wins out. And then, of course, the inevitable infighting between the Tanari. It says, two particularly powerful Tanari rapidly rose to prominence and all soon knew that it would be either Orcus or Grazit who would claim the prize of Prince of Demons. And yet, in their struggles against each other, neither saw the strange and deformed shadow approaching from the wet and forgotten depths of the abyss. This was Demogorgon, returned from his exile and able to defeat both Orcus and Grazit to become Prince of Demons. Which story is true? Well, lore is funny in the way that two separate stories can coexist alongside each other, both equally valid without either ever being assigned as the actual truth. The origins of the demon prince Demogorgon being such an example. Uh, Another example might be you hearing from someone that uh, Demogorgon doesn't actually have baboon heads, it has hyena heads. I don't really subscribe to that, but there is a case to be made that at one point Demogorgon had hyena heads. I don't know why they changed it and I don't know why they changed it back, but if you look in third edition, it's hyena heads instead of baboon heads. Whatever. I don't know. Anyway, now, dear listener, let us go to our magic item of the week. This week, in keeping with the dichotomy of Demogorgon, his ever at odds two heads, each scheming to destroy the other, I present to you the coin of decision. Now, this resembles your ordinary silver piece. One side has an embossed sun on it, while the other has a crescent moon. It is said by some that the deity of fate, some know her as Istis, other as Tyche, created this coin as a way to fairly settle disagreements between the deity of the sun, perhaps Foltis or Nola, or of course, Pelor, and the deity of the moon, usually Selun, during the creation of the universe and its various worlds. Others think its power extends only as far as its worth in silver, which usually falters at around nine or ten pints of ale. However, you are definitely in the former camp, having personal experience of the power this seemingly innocuous coin has. Once per long rest, When confronted with a choice you are having difficulty making, you can use the coin of decision to make that choice for you. Seems pretty straightforward, a simple coin flip. However, whatever resolutions the gods of fate decide based on the coin flip result, you are compelled to carry that out regardless of what the possible outcome or consequences could be. Your dozens, if not hundreds of feet below the surface in a labyrinthine-like dungeon, you come to an impasse, left or right. If you let the coin decide, the coin of decision decide, you must follow through with its verdict. Even a charm person spell is unable to dissuade you. However, once you flip the coin and the choice is made, 
you now have advantage on your next action. So let's say in the previous scenario, you're in this dark hallway and you, you have to go left or right. You, do, you flip the coin and it's, you go left. So you take the dark hallway to the left and you come across a death tyrant. If you are able to attack first, you attack with advantage. If the death tyrant is able to hit you with one of its rays first, you roll your saving throw with advantage. It is the gods of fate, protection, and goodwill extending towards someone who decides to put their trust in them. Well, that about wraps it up for this week on the D&D Lorecast. Dear listener, if you want to know more about the Demogorgon and the Gaping Maw, the Lair of Abyss, this demon prince rules over, the Patron Plus bonus content will drop next Tuesday. Of course, this, as well as so much more, is available to um, available only to our patrons. So if you're interested, check out patreon.com slash dndlorecast, where we have tiers from $5 all the way to $75, each with their own cool perks and benefits. Uh, once again, mentioning the raffle that we are currently holding, more info on that, including how to purchase tickets, is included in the show notes. Also included in the show notes are links to the other podcasts the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast crew are involved in, whether they be tabletop role-playing game live plays or Lorecast for other nerdy intellectual properties. There is definitely something for just about everyone. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us. Thank you for allowing the D&D Lorecast to be a part of your day. Fare thee well, dear listener, and until we meet again, may all your 20s be natural. Thanks for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with a friend, following us on Twitter at DNDLorecast, or jumping on the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons & Dragons. We'll talk to you next time. Listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.